morning, good morning. It's great to be with you guys again. Uh, you know, it's uh, just been over a year, maybe 14 months, since we moved to the United Arab Emirates. I'm glad to have my, my wife, Karen, um, our four kids, Chaya, Afsana, Kakoli, and Ethan, uh, with us. We've had a great year in Dubai. And uh, if there's anything I, I want to share with you, it's just that, that God has been very, very kind to us. As we went to Dubai, we really didn't know what it would be like. The, the, we didn't know what the church situation would be like. Even the, the seminary that we joined, we didn't know exactly what that would be like. And we just want to report to you, if there's anything we could declare, it's all that God has done um, through us and with us and for us. <laughs> we had no idea what it would be like. And we got there and we were warmly welcomed by a great church, Redeemer Church of Dubai, a church of many nations that seeks to make disciples of all nations. We got to participate and join with a seminary called the Gulf Theological Seminary, uh, where I got to start teaching classes and begin to mentor and, and, and invite students into our home. We got to get to know their testimonies and, and to hear story after story of what God has done in the lives of many men and women from all over the world. We had people in our home from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, we had people in our home from Nigeria, we had people in our home um, from the great country of India where we served for 13, 14 years. And, and so many times we would ask them over a meal, tell us what has God done um, in your life? And we would get to hear the, the testimonies of how God has saved many, many men and women from many, many challenges and calling them to, to trust and, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be saved, to become Christians, to be members of, of a local church, to be baptized and a part of the, the local body. We've gotten to actually see that. Just even the last couple of months, we've gotten to see Redeemer Church, receive into, see men and women baptized in, in the water, come out of the water, become members of the local church from Afghanistan, um, from Iran, from the Philippines. And as we participate together, as we become one body, one church, we, we get to fellowship one with another in that great land of the United Arab Emirates. You know, I've, I just, you got to hear good news, right? Because sometimes you hear about the, the challenges, you hear about persecution, or you hear about the struggles and the suffering that the, the world experiences in North Africa or South Asia or the Middle East. And, and those things do exist. Those, are, those challenges are real. And yet, in the midst of them, Jesus Christ is faithful to his promise. Do you remember his promise? He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus is fulfilling that promise in the middle of the Middle East. Now, currently, currently, in the middle of the Middle East, in the middle of Dubai, there's a building called the Burj Khalifa. The Burj Khalifa, I think it's up there. There it is. Yeah, the Burj Khalifa is the tallest building in the world, 2,700 feet-ish into the sky, half a mile, 163 stories. It represents, in many respects, this, this whole nation, the UAE. It represents Dubai. It's the tallest, the biggest. It's right next to the biggest mall in the world, the, the Dubai Mall. Uh, the, the, the fastest roller coaster it's just a few kilometers away. The longest water slide, the biggest adventure park, the fastest race car, the most expensive uh, trophies for prizes. Do you hear the estness? Biggest, fastest, slowest, longest. Do you know what Dubai wants? Dubai wants your glory. Dubai wants you and the world to say, look at me. I'm beautiful, aren't I? I'm the biggest and the bestest. Look at me. Dubai wants to be supreme. Today we're talking about supremacy, number oneness, firstness. But not the firstness of Dubai, because, you know, next month or next year, another country can build a bigger tower, a longer, faster, slower, better, stronger, whatever. But we're not talking about one that has no rival. We're talking about one that, that has no competitor, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at, at someone who makes something like the Burj Khalifa look like a teeny tiny stack of toothpicks, right? Jesus Christ. We want to look at his supremacy. We want to apply it, talk about um, standing firm. We, we want to consider the danger to our own understanding of his supremacy and his syncretism, mixing things in. 
And then we want to actually look at Jesus Christ, supremacy embodied. And so to do that, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1. And so turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And then as you're turning there, I just want to say this, in the middle of this passage, verses 15 to 20, is in the middle of a prayer. Paul begins a prayer. He's praying, he's thanking God for the church at Colossae. And right in the middle of it, he just spills over into praise to Jesus. And he lets us see in verses 15 to 20, a hymn, a first century, about 20, 25 years after Jesus ascends to heaven, we, we get to read of this song. We've been singing songs the island way. This is a song, a hymn, the first century Jewish and Christian and Greek way. How did they speak about Jesus Christ? Well, we get to see it right here. A hymn, a praise song to Jesus Christ. And then we'll see in verses 15 to 23 how that's applied. But for today, we're actually going to start with the application. We're going to start after the hymn, and then we're going to back up into the hymn. Does that make sense? So we're going to talk about the application of supremacy, and then we're going to go back and actually look at that hymn, that song, kind of phrase by phrase. And so let me read it here, and then I'll open us up with a word of prayer. It says in verse 15, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were made through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church, He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Father, we come to you now in the name and the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, the firstborn of all creation. This morning, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to see him, to hear him, to behold him, Lord. Help me, Lord, even as I speak your word, that I might not distract from the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. So again, as I said, we're going to start with the application. So look down at verse 21. Down at verse 21, 20, 23 is the way that Paul is going to apply this hymn. In other words, where he's going to sing the hymn. I'm not going to sing it this morning. He's going, to, he's going to show the hymn, and then he's going to apply it. And we see that in verse 21. So follow along with me as he applies the hymn. And just to, just to say with application, I love the so that's of Scripture. You know, the in order that's of Scripture. In order that, so that. It's just so important. Right, because imagine, imagine, you know, I gave my wife a wedding ring 20 years ago almost so that she would know that I have a promise, a covenant with her to love her, and then she would love, she'd give me a ring, and, and, and it's meaningful. In order that, I would know the promise is there, right? We, we exchanged rings. The so that, the so that, you know, I, we went to, we moved to Dubai so that we could train pastors, equip church leaders for, for church planting churches in the middle of the Middle East and back in South Asia, right? You work day in and day out so that you might be paid and feed your families and live a godly life in the midst of this world and serve your neighbors, right? But recognize if you get the so that's wrong, if you mix it up, everything falls apart, right? Imagine I, I gave my wife a wedding ring so that 20 years now I can, I can sell the ring and make a little profit. What do you think? Not a good idea. Yeah, and then if that's, if that's kind of in the back of your head, that's a really bad plan. Right? We moved to the Middle East, to Dubai, so that we could see all the rich people driving fast cars and, and go and visit the Burj Khalifa, right? No, that's a terrible reason to move to the Middle East. You guys work day in and day out so that, in order that, you can 
What, make lots of money, live the hi-fi life, live your best life now. No. If you mix up, mess up, the in order that, everything gets mixed up or messed up. And here we are going to see an order that, okay? So right in the middle of this section, I'll start in verse 21. And you, the church at Colossae, and you, right here, Independent Bible Church, you who were once alienated, alienated means far off, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's you, were. Jesus has now reconciled, brought back to God. He has made a way that you can be in relationship with him through Jesus Christ. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to, do you hear it? So that, in order to present you happy and healthy and, is that what it says? No, no, look back, look, look back there with me in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting away from the hope of the gospel. Did you hear the in order that? Jesus Christ, God, wants you as a church to be holy, blameless, above reproach. He wants you to continue in the faith because there are some who will not continue. They will show that they, they, were, they were not Christian. They didn't know God. He wants you to be stable, steadfast. It's like to, to be firm and to not be shaken. This is shaky. Yeah, he wants you to not shift away from the hope of the gospel. He wants you to stand firm, and the application of the hymn that we'll, that we'll look at and the, of, of the vision of Jesus Christ is that you as individuals and you as families, you as Bible studies, you as an entire church would not shake, would not shift from the hope of the gospel. And there are dangers, right? There are things that we will experience, things that we will see, maybe things that we might believe that begin to intrude on our safety and our security just like maybe like this pulpit, we might be a little, a little shaky. And so God wants us to be firm, to stand firm. He wants us not to shift away from the hope of the gospel. He wants your faith, IBC, to be rock solid. And so we want to see Jesus now, maybe perhaps before we talk about the, the supremacy of Jesus in, in, the, in the hymn, I want you to understand the danger. What's at stake here? Well, what is the endangerment or the threat to our understanding of the supremacy of Jesus? And, and it comes down to just three little words, mixing things up. Mixing things in, you know, adding in a little of this and a little of that. The technical theological word is called syncretism. In syncretism, you, you mix in with Jesus... Something that's not Jesus, right? Mixing things in. It's, uh, it's like uh, you get a headache, and so you go to the, to the drawer, and you pull out some ibuprofen or some Tylenol, and you got that little pill that has 99% Tylenol and 1% arsenic. And what happens? Your headache goes away because you die. You mix in a little bit of poison, just a teeny tiny. Oh, come on, TJ. Why are you so like, you know, hard-nosed about this? It's just 1%, but it's enough to kill you. It can be poison what you mix in, right? There's another kind of mixing in, right? And that's where you, you put the, get the proportions wrong. You put too much emphasis on one thing than the other. Several years ago, my dad and I were making a big batch of this Iranian pastry called nazuk. And in nazuk, in the, for this big batch, it called for two tablespoons of salt and two quarts of sugar. But as we were making it, something got mixed up. What, what got mixed up? We put in two quarts of salt, two tablespoons of sugar, but we didn't know it until it had already been made. So it's baked, it comes out of the oven, and it just looks so good, and so you just take it, and you're just like, here. Uh, uh, right, right, it's like, it's like vomitous. The entire batch was ruined. 
It was ruined because we had mixed in a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We didn't even know it. We didn't even know. You know, the Colossian church 2,000 years ago, they had mixed in a little bit of this and a little bit of that. A little bit of arsenic, and perhaps they'd, they'd swapped some things. You know, if you look in chapter 2, verse 8, you can just listen to this. See to it, Paul says, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and not according to Christ. Verse 18 of chapter 2, let no one disqualify you, people who insist on asceticism, meaning like physically you know, beating yourself into holiness and, and don't insist on worship of angels and people who go on in detail about foolish visions puffed up without reason. Now, theologically, there were some people in and around the church of Colossae that were saying that Jesus was, was awesome. Yeah, he was like an angel, like a cosmic being. And of course, there are lots of those. People were confusing the person and the work of Jesus. You know, they were morally mixed up. You look in chapter 3, and, and, they, and, and Paul describes that there were people that were involved in sexual morality and impurity and passion and, and covetousness, you know, coveting, longing, lusting after others. There are people who are sinning with their mouths. It says in, in chapter 3, anger and wrath and malice, abusive speech from their mouth. And, and so Paul, in this little letter to the church at Colossae, is trying to set some things right. He's trying to show them, you, gotta, you can't mix, the, mix in a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's dangerous. What about the American church? See, American church may be tempted to mix some things in. I don't mean the American church down the road, though, right? They're easy to see. Oh, man, look what they do. Look how they sing. Look what, look what they speak about on their, their Sunday morning. No, I mean, I mean like IBC right here. What are you tempted to mix in? To perhaps swap some things around because it's convenient or because looking at Scripture, it actually feels a little uncomfortable the way that it's written. And so you'd kind of rather have two quarts of salt and two tablespoons of sugar. What have you perhaps mixed up? The church in Dubai, we're part of what's called Redeemer Church, we're um, a church of many, many nations, and each one of those people that comes and becomes a member of the church brings along with them a set of assumptions about the world, what is right, what is wrong, and it takes time to disciple, to expose them to the word of God so they see the word of God and they see Jesus Christ and they begin to go, wait a second, the way we do things as, as Filipinos or the way that we do things as Iranians or the way that we do things as Pakistanis, maybe it's not all that right. Americans, too, in the church, they come, they become members. They also expose the word of God and in seeing Jesus Christ, they begin to go, huh, maybe the way we've always done things just isn't actually biblical. So I ask you this morning, shine a light on Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ and ask, ask God this morning to reveal to you how have you as an individual or you as a family or you, you as a church began to water some things down or add in just a, just a teeny tiny bit, 1% of that Americana poison that ultimately is going to kill you. You know, our remaining time this morning, though, I want to devote to seeing Jesus Christ because we can talk about uh, the application of supremacy, right? Supremacy applied. We can talk about the danger to supremacy in our own hearts, but we actually just want to see Jesus and so for, for the for our remaining time, we're going to be looking at this hymn, verses 15 to 20. We're going to go, by, go phrase by phrase, and we, we want to see Jesus Christ. You know, if you look down in verse 18, that, that word I keep using, supreme, uh, back in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be, what's your Bible say? My Bible says preeminent. Some of your Bibles say supreme. One version I like says so that he might be number one. And that's what supremacy means. That means number one, unrivaled, no rival, no competitor. 
No worthy opponent, no other one like him. In fact, he is so number one that number two, number three, and all the other, they don't, they don't even belong on the list. So it's not like there's one name and then way down on the list, there are a couple other names that are possible. That there are, are no competing suitably, suitable saviors. There is only one name under heaven given by which we may be saved. Jesus. And so who is supreme? Who is number one? Who is first? Who is only? Now, 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 kids, if you're one of the younger here, you actually know this answer better than most of the adults. The adults don't know that they're supposed to answer that. The kids, you get it though, right? When I say, who is number one, you say, Jesus. Because he is first. He is supreme. And yet, why? Today, I want to give you 12 becauses, 12 reasons. And we're just going to run through these really fast. It'll be like a race, right? A race. And so we're going to have 12 statements on supremacy. Number one, you see it there in verse 15. He is supreme because he is God's image. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. When Adam was formed and placed in the garden, do you remember this? He was made in the image of God. You and I as humans, men and women, from any conceivable background, looking in any conceivable way, we are made in the image of God. Jesus Christ is not made in the image of God. He is the image of God. You and I are made off the copy of Jesus. It's like we're like the Xeroxes from the original. Who's the original? Jesus Christ is the original. He is the image of the invisible God. And because he is the image, he is supreme. But you also see a second thing, right? Because he is the image of the, of the who? Of the, of the invisible God. He is the, the one that you see who represents, who is the one that you cannot see. And so the God that you cannot see, that no human being has ever seen, John chapter 1, 18, and has lived to tell about it, Jesus Christ is the one that, that when you look at Jesus, you see God. He makes the invisible visible. The unseen is seeable in Jesus Christ because he makes the invisible God known, comprehensible, understandable, perceptible. You want to see God? Look to Jesus Christ. We do not look to trees. We do not look to the sea. We do not look to the Hindu gods or the Islamic path to see God. We look to Jesus Christ and we see the invisible God We hear the invisible God in Jesus Christ. Number three, he is supreme because he is the creator of all things. It says there he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created. Now that word firstborn, we have to take just a little bit longer time to develop because it's kind of funny language. We don't use this language in the United States. Firstborn has to do with the the issue of inheritance, the issue of of power and authority. It doesn't necessarily mean that that the kid who is born first from the womb. It's a title. It's a title. We see this title being used in Psalm 89. Perhaps turn over there. Turn over to Psalm chapter 89. Because we have here a psalm written by a guy named Ethan reflecting back, reflecting back on King David. And right in the middle of Psalm 89, as, he's, as Ethan the Ezraite is talking about remembering back to King David, he says throughout this whole psalm, there is coming a king like David and aren't you getting so? Don't you want to get excited about the coming king who will be like David? And the whole psalm describes who this future coming king is. And, and you can see the name picked up in verse 20. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil, I have anointed him. Verse 21, 22, 23 is all about describing this David like king. And then look at verse 27. Verse 26, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. Verse 27, I will make him the firstborn. I will make this David-like king, I will give him the title and the power and the authority of the firstborn. He will be the one who inherits the throne. In the first century, when Paul is writing this, 
almost all of the emperors of Rome, you know, the way they gave their seat of power to their next was by appointing somebody. In other words, by, through, through adoption. A, an, an elderly man is about to die. The, the emperor would say, this man over here, I appoint to be emperor. I designate him the firstborn. I give him the title of the firstborn. I give him the power and the authority of the firstborn. And so here we have in chapter 1, Jesus is called the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the one who has all the power and authority over creation. And why is he designated the firstborn of all creation? Why is he designated the the one who has the power over all creation? The very next verse describes it for us. Look at verse 16. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Jesus Christ is the one who has created this entire universe, all things by him, through him, and we see later, for him. And so there is nothing you have ever thought, nothing you've ever seen, nothing you haven't, you've never, anything you've, you've never not seen that Jesus has not made. If it, it exists, Jesus is the one who has made it. This, this goes all the way to the things that you, you can't see, the spiritual realm. Every single spiritual power, every single spiritual angel, of whom there are millions, perhaps billions, every single demonic power, there might be millions, there might be billions, every single thing that we cannot see in the spiritual realm in which we inhabit, who made it? Who made it? Jesus Christ. Because all things were created through and by and for Jesus Christ. This means that all things belong to him. He owns it all. It belongs to him. It doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to any nation or country. It doesn't belong to a governmental entity. It doesn't belong to an NGO, a nonprofit. Who does it belong to? Jesus Christ. Who is the king over creation? Jesus. And why? Because he made it. He made it. And so it belongs to him to do with as he pleases, to rule over as he pleases. And so because he is the creator of all things, he is at the center, the core, the heart. He is number one. He is first. He is supreme. You know, some people in our world, we experience this in Dubai, you experience this here. Some people appear to be more interested in the creation than the creator. They love going out into the wild for an hour. They love it more than spending five minutes perhaps praying and and, and knowing God. I don't mean to say that you can't pray for five minutes while on an hour hike. We can do that. But, but it just seems that some people love and adore the tree more than the creator of the tree or, or the mountains behind us here more than the creator of the mountains. We as Christians, we love the gift of creation, not as an end unto itself. We love the gift of creation because we know its creator, because we know Jesus. We love him. There's more here, right? Number four, supreme Jesus is because he's timelessly before all things. He's before, he existed before all things. He said in just the very next phrase. Now this phrase, before all things, is both temporal, time-wise. He's before all things. He's also above or, or beyond all things. He's, he's by order and priority. And these next two points kind of go together. He's before temporally in time. He's above spatially or in order or in hierarchy, above all things. In fact, Jesus exists before time, so there's, there's no one that can outdo Jesus in time, right? He's older. He's the ancient of days as Daniel talks about. In, in, in John chapter 8, Jesus himself said, I, before Abraham was, I am, which means he's superior even to Abraham, the great father. We, we recognize that even before Genesis 1-1, where it says, in the beginning God, that even before then, before creation itself, Jesus was there living in perfect 
eternal fellowship with the triune God. He also exists above or or outside creation. So it's not as if he created the world and now he's stuck in it, but actually he is above creation. He he exists beyond it. It's like that time where Jesus points to the, the, the Pharisees and he says, you are of this world, I am not of this world. You came from this place, I came from another place. I came from above and beyond. Jesus, in a, in a sense, overextends our reality. And so, yes, he came in the form of flesh, as we'll look a little bit later, but he, never forget, exists before and above because Jesus Christ is before all things. He is supreme. Number one. He is first. He is only. There is no one else like him. He is supreme because he is the sustainer of the universe. He's the upholder of the universe, the keeper of all creation. It is not magic stones or vibrations. It is not incantations that keep the world together. Right? It is not world peace that keeps the world together. What keeps the world together? Jesus Christ. It says in Hebrews, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus Christ is the one who made the earth, and he didn't just, just leave and go off to some you know, absent corner of the universe, as some might suppose, but he's actually, been, he's actually intimately, intricately involved with every single aspect of every single human being in every single city, of every single country, of every single continent on the entire planet. And what that means is you can trust him with your junk, with your stuff, with your hardship, because he knows precisely, personally, intimately, everything about all of us. He upholds the universe by the word of us. If, if Jesus, for just one second, were to withdraw his, his word, his, his power, the entire universe would cease to exist. That's power. Brother, sister, that's power. That's the kind of person that we can go to when we have trouble, when we have difficulty. You know, I do not fear. I do not fear what will happen to my family living in the middle of the the United Arab Emirates. I do not fear, therefore, what will happen in the next American election or what the Supreme Court does or does not do. Why? Because I know somebody upholds every single atom of every single cell in the entire universe, and I trust him with whatever happens to my family. Now, I do get sinfully anxious sometimes about, like, do I have enough in the bank, or what's going to happen to my kids when they grow up, or, like, do I take this left or this right in, the, in traffic, right? I mean, those are things that, 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 that trouble me sometimes, and so I, I, can, I then turn and I, and I run to Jesus and I say, Lord Jesus, help me work through this kind of immediate anxiety, this fear, because I don't see the world as it really is. Friends, you don't see the world as it really is. We see the world perhaps as like a, a competition between America and some, something else out there, or maybe within America, some kind of competition. We see the world as a group of competing social mores fighting against each other, and we've got to participate, we've got to fight. We see the world maybe in terms of economics. I don't know how you see the world, but we're tempted to see the world with our own two eyes. And we don't see Jesus upholding the universe with the world of his power. We, we don't remember, we forget that Jesus, were he to cease upholding the world, everything would cease to exist. And so, friend, beloved, look to Jesus Christ. Run to Jesus Christ with that, that, that anxiety that bores into your mind, that fear. Run to him, for he created the entire universe, and it was not difficult for him. Every single thing, every throne, every ruler or dominion, every power belongs to Jesus, for he is supreme. Now, so far, so far, all that we've looked at has to do with the creation, you know, the cosmos. We might say it's a bit distant to us, a bit personal, a bit impersonal. But the rest of these, the rest of these all have to do with us as individuals and with us as a community. 
It's like Paul now turns the song personal and we get to hear how does Jesus then relate to you and to me? And so we get to spend the rest of our time just even reflecting on who is Jesus Christ for us and and what has he done for us because we want to see him as he is supreme. And so look there, Jesus Christ is supreme because he is the head of the church. The head of the body, the church, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who leads and guides and sustains and disciplines his people here at Independent Bible Church. We know why we do it, but in our bulletins or in our church polity, we'll say, lead pastor, and it'll have a name there, right? But who is the chief shepherd of the sheep? Jesus Christ. Who leads and guides Independent Bible Church? Jesus Christ. Who loves Independent Bible Church so much that he will sometimes prune us and discipline us? Jesus Christ. One theologian uh, says it like this, that Christ is the inspiring, ruling, guiding, combining, sustaining power, the mainspring of the church's activity, the center of its unity, and the seat of its life. Brothers and sisters, you are the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is your head. And he is supreme because he is the head of the church. Moreover, he's supreme because he rose from the dead, glorified. He is the firstborn, it says, of the dead. His resurrection from the dead marks a a complete and fundamental change in reality. He opens up a whole new world because there's a new creation coming, isn't there? Now, Jesus is the first of the dead, the firstborn over the dead in order and kind, right? He's not the first in history to be raised from the dead. Who else do you know was raised from the dead in history that we read about in the Bible? Lazarus, yeah, the famous Lazarus. There's some less famous people, right? Who else? The widow's son, yeah, Eutychus, we might say in Acts, back in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha had several people rise from the dead. But you know, there's a big difference between Lazarus and Eutychus and the widow's son. What's the difference between them and the way that Jesus rose from the dead? They all died again. When they, when they were raised from the dead, they were raised in a sense with their old bodies and eventually succumbed to old age. But Jesus, when he was raised, was raised with a glorified body. And he never died again. And he now reigns as the firstborn, the one who has all the power and authority over all those who die. Before us, billions and billions of humans have died. Some redeemed, some unredeemed. Who is the head and the king over all of them? Jesus Christ. And so those who belong to Jesus Christ and salvation and experience abundant life with him and those who go away to eternal judgment, who is firstborn and the king over all of them? Jesus Christ. And so he being the firstborn from the dead has preeminence, supremacy. There is no one who will come who will ever unseat Jesus Christ from being first, only, Number one, supreme. Now, listen, for just a moment, Jesus Christ really did, about 2,000 years ago, really did die. He really was buried. The the tomb really was sealed. Now, either Jesus Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago and was seen by 500 people and then spoken many words, or he did not. Either he rose from the dead and is supreme, or he is nothing. And so let us do away with this this concept that every now and then someone will say, even in a church, oh, you know, I love Jesus, you know, but but whether it happened or not, that's not all so important, right? Jesus was a good teacher. He was like a guru. He was like a really spiritual guy, had long hair, very, very flowing. We can follow Jesus, but whether those things happen in the Bible or not isn't so important. Oh, no, 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 actually it is important. Because either Jesus rose from the dead on the third day or he did not. 
And if he rose from the dead, then it changes everything, right? Everything. Every aspect of your life, every thought that you can think, everybody that you interact with in your, in your family or in your job or in your community, it changes everything about our lives if Jesus Christ really is supreme, risen from the dead. And I tell you this morning, Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. He really did ascend to heaven as king. He really is ruling right now and very shortly. We don't know. Next year, a decade from now, he will return. And he returns as victorious, judging king, putting all things right that have been made wrong. He, risen from the dead, glorified, is supreme. Number one. He's supreme because he's fully divine. We'll take these next two together. He's fully divine and he's fully human. You see that in the passage where it says, he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. Verse 19, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. His identity, the essence of Jesus is this mystery of him being fully God and fully man together. 100%, not 200%, not two persons, one person, the divine man. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Ephesians 1.23 talks about how Jesus possesses the fullness of him who fills all in all. You know, in the Old Testament, we read how God's presence came to the mountain and, and would come in a cloud, right, and then sometimes go up. And then later there's a temple, and the, the glory of the Lord filled the temple in, in, in some spatial way. And yet we also read in the Psalms that the, the, the fullness of the glory of God could not be contained even in the entire universe. But actually in Jesus, we see the fullness of God dwell in bodily form, in a human form, in a human form. You know, nobody who saw Jesus in the first century questioned whether he was a human. He was fully man. Hebrews 2 and 4 talk about how he became like us in every way, yet without sin. And so Jesus is supreme, number one, first because he is fully God and fully man in perfect unity together. And because he is fully God and fully man, he is supreme because he reconciles all things. Look at the next, the next point. I'm at, I'm at number 10 or number 11. Where are you guys at? Yeah, he's supreme because he reconciles all things. Now, to reconcile all things... We have to take a step back and say, why does it need to be reconciled? Why does it need to be reconciled all things? Because of sin, because of brokenness, because of of human shame and wrongdoing. When Adam sinned in the garden, it says that all of creation was set into a groaning, was set into a bondage. And for, the th- for thousands of years now, we as humans have experienced this brokenness even in the created order. So however beautiful the Olympic range is, it's under a groaning. For how gorgeous this land can be in the months of July and August, it is still set under a bondage. But it won't be forever. Because there's a moment when Jesus Christ will reconcile to himself all things. Even Romans 8 talks about this this moment where the creation itself yearning to be set free through the redemption that Jesus Christ obtained and procured. And so Jesus Christ is supreme because he reconciles to himself all things that have been separated or alienated to himself in the universe, in the world. And then finally, he is supreme because of his death on the cross. Look at the last phrase in the song. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood or through the blood of his cross. This final one's interesting to me. It's interesting because the song or the hymn starts with Jesus Christ in absolute glory, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He makes everything. He's king. It moves through victorious resurrection. But where does it end? The song ends with Jesus 
and death. Death. Shameful death. A, a death on a filthy, ugly Roman cross kind of death. It's the least honorable or glorious thing. And yet, do you know why? It's the, the end of the song. Do you know why we as Christians sing about the death of Jesus Christ on the cross over and over and over and over and over and over again? Because it is by his blood, it is through the cross that God makes peace with us. As I started at the beginning, remember that phrase? It said in verse 21, and you who once were alienated from God and hostile we who are alienated and hostile, how do we become friends with God? How do we get brought back to God? How are we reconciled? It is through Jesus Christ dying for our sins on the cross, making peace for us with God by his blood being shed. That is through his death. On the cross. There is no reconciliation with God apart from the death of Jesus Christ. And so, even this morning, if you haven't turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you do with your sin? What do you do with your shame? For it remains with you. There is payment to be made, and you will pay it. Or you can turn to Jesus Christ, who already paid a price who already died bearing the wrath of God, experiencing the alienation that you and I deserve. And if you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in him, if you turn and trust him, Jesus says, I will in no way turn you away. Come to me and I will give you life. It does not matter what you have done. It does matter now what you do. Jesus Christ is supreme because of his death on the cross to save us as sinners. God made a way. He made peace for us through the blood of his cross. And this morning, in the, in the hymn that we've looked at, or we've looked at 12 quick points, we could have spent more time here or more time there, and, and yet I want to just go back to supremacy applied. Do you remember at the beginning What was the point? What does Paul do with it? He says, stand firm. Do not shift from the hope of the gospel. Don't get shaky on me. Be be stable. Be steadfast. And so just a a few statements I want to make for you, even as, as as you leave here, as you spend your lunchtime conversation, thinking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ since he is first, IBC, you should be marked by no other man. You should be marked by no other matter. When people hear you as an individual speak, fathers or grandfathers, when people hear you as as mothers speak or teach, people should know that you have but one Lord. They should know from our lives that Jesus Christ is supreme. That is to say that no other marking distinguishment is what we're, what we're known for. And so if, if people think of you and they think primarily, mainly of politics or some social convention or, well, they're the best hiker in the world or whatnot, I think, I think we may have missed something. Right before we left Dubai, someone, someone said, oh, TJ, TJ and Karen, you're that adoption family, Right? And, and I know what they're meaning. They're, they're being descriptive. TJ and Karen, you're that family that adopted from India. Yes, that's us. Uh, when we got back here to the United States, someone said, oh, TJ and Karen, you're that Dubai family. I don't know what they mean. They're being descriptive. You're that family that happens to live in Dubai. But actually, that's not who we are. That's not our identity as a family. We are Christ followers, And I want everything that I say and everything that I do, every meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, every chai time that we might have in Dubai, every hike that I'm going on, to be focused, centered, hubbed around Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is number one. I don't want anybody to think, seeing my life or seeing your life, Independent Bible Church, that there's something else there. And so what else might be there? What else intrudes? What else competes for the supremacy of Jesus Christ in your life? 
Is there a rival? Is there a competitor? If I interviewed all your friends, all your family, would they say, oh yeah, Bob. I don't know any Bobs here. Bob, he loves Jesus, but he's also, you know, big into... that Jesus Christ would be the formative, number one, supreme person in your life, IBC. And so since he is first, let's make him first. Let's make him first. Let's give him the priority. Give him the place in our speech. Give him the place in our thinking, in our entertainment, in what we eat and drink, such that people will look at us and they really will say, I don't really understand this this family or that family because they are so won over, devoted to, in love with Jesus. It's almost like they actually believe in him. Since he is first Make him first. And because he is first, friends, when you have that moment of fear, that moment of anxiety, that thing that begins to intrude upon you that you're uncertain about, who are you going to run to? Run to Jesus, the upholder of the universe, the creator and the maker of all all realms, seen and unseen. Run to Jesus with that minor or that major concern. Let Jesus Christ Hold it for you. It will not be hard for him. Trust him. Trust him. For he is supreme because he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were made in heaven and earth, things seen and unseen, whether rulers or dominions or authorities or kings. All things were made through Jesus and for Jesus Christ. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have preeminence in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things in heaven and on earth, making peace the blood of his cross. Pray with me. Jesus Christ, we do come to you and say, We need your help today. We need your help. For it is so easy in a moment like this morning to say, yes, yes, that's what I believe. That's who I am. And an hour from now or two hours from now, tomorrow, to have already mixed something in. Gracious God, would you help us to see the difference between salt and sugar? Help us to see that Jesus Christ as supreme as number one, as first, means he is only. And he will have no other rival or competitor in our lives. Show me, Lord, show my family, show this church how they can be fully, totally, completely devoted to Jesus Christ. Let no other name, no other thing intrude or compete with him. Help us, Lord. We are weak. Lord Jesus, I'm thankful this morning that you are gentle and gracious, that you say repeatedly, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And so we do come to you, you who are full of love and compassion for even the lost sheep, Lord. We come to you. Help us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Amen.